What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, stimulus, finally, maybe, the latest on the White House's last-minute offer to Congress. The question here is, you know, is there enough support around the direct checks at the expense of something else? Goodbye to New York. Goldman Sachs plans to fly south to Florida caught one congressman's eye. New Yorker Tom Swasey warns other companies and other states not so fast. Right now, New York subsidizes the rest of the country. We set up this system under the New Deal and the Great Society to subsidize these other states to help them to catch up with us. Now we're subsidizing them to kick our ass. And when COVID continues, too many patients experience symptoms for the long haul. The Mayo Clinic is studying rehab and getting people back to work. Many of the patients that we are seeing are younger in age and are quite healthy and physically fit before their COVID infection. Those stories today, plus Joe, Becky, and Andrew on the cost of convenience for home delivery. It's good to be conflicted, <laughs> I think. I'm conflicted, uh, it's my middle name. And a stunning cybersecurity breach reminds us, have you updated your password? You have a good defense going, Joe. It's so good you can't even get in. I have a good defense to myself. It's Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box. This is CNBC, and I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. New developments out of Washington. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin floating a new $916 billion stimulus aid proposal. Yvonne Mouin joins us now with more. It's not, it's not 917 or 915. This is 916, exactly. $916 billion on the nose, Joe, and yeah. that price tag is pretty close to the framework that a bipartisan group of lawmakers have been trying to hash out over the past week. But there is one crucial difference. The White House plan includes another round of direct checks worth $600 a person, whereas it pays for that by getting rid of the $300 a week boost in unemployment benefits that's in that bipartisan framework. A senior White House aide tells me that the checks are a high priority for the president. Democratic leadership called the trade unacceptable. But the politics of this do not break down cleanly along party lines. There are Democrats like Senator Bernie Sanders and Congresswoman Ilhan Omar who are trying to rally support around direct payments. And there are Republicans like Senator Josh Hawley who are calling for direct payments that are double the size that are in the White House's plan. Now, lawmakers have given themselves until December 18th to try to reach some sort of agreement. And if they don't, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has suggested a fallback plan, and that is to get rid of the things that they don't agree on, including liability protections and state and local aid, and just pass the things that they do agree on. Guys. That's interesting. Uh... Is that the right kind of bipartisanship, would you say, Alon? Uh, well, well, I guess we'll take any. Well, I, the question here is, you know, is there enough support around the direct checks 
at the expense of something else. I think that Democrats would be happy to add in another round of direct checks at $600 a person, but they're not willing to do that at the expense of something else. And if you add that in there, the price tag suddenly starts to creep up there and maybe you're at a trillion dollars or so, or maybe even a little bit more. That becomes an uncomfortable place for Republicans. So once again, you're back at that jigsaw puzzle and trying to figure out what is the right mix of policies that can pass? And at the end of the day, McConnell's suggestion may be the one that carries the most water. You know, just go for a bare bones, super skinny package, if you will, um, and go home for the holidays and then let this fight be taken back up again once there is a new president sitting in the White House and a new dynamic perhaps on Capitol Hill. Um, but right now, these negotiations are incredibly muddy and it's unclear which of these ideas, if any of them, is going to win out. Hey, Elon, just trying to think through the numbers on this. I mean, even if we're talking about a skinny bill that McConnell is now sounding like he's endorsing, if you get rid of the liabilities, which didn't have any funding behind it, I think, if you get rid of the state and local government, I mean, I think the last I saw that number was around $160 billion. You're still talking about something closer to $750 billion dollars not the $500 billion skinny plan that the, the Republicans in the Senate had originally been endorsing. So uh, do you think there's some likelihood that they get something done? I mean, what are the odds they get something done versus going home on December 18th having done nothing, not even the, this new plan that McConnell's talking about? Yeah, frankly, Becky, I just don't know. And the numbers are really fuzzy, partly because of some of the offsets from the money that uh, was repurposed from the Fed, partly because there's leftover money from the PPP, and partly because when McConnell said, you know, get rid of the things they don't agree on, you know, it's unclear what else from the laundry list, like postal service money, opioid funding, vaccine distribution, there are different, differing numbers around that, how much for each of those other categories would be included or would you just be simply looking at extending the expiring unemployment benefits, PPP, and maybe some a little bit of extra money for distribution? So even what the contours of a super skinny package might be are not clear at this time. And the negotiations keep getting stuck on these other items um, that then don't address what's going on in the broader package overall. So. Um, you know, it's in, a, it's in a very difficult place right now. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that the bipartisan group of lawmakers who've been trying to hash all of this out still have not put out their detailed summary because, as we know, the devil is in the details. And it doesn't seem perhaps worthwhile to put out um, some more specifics when you have leadership already haggling over what's out there in the public domain so far. Yeah, it seems like it's getting more complicated, not less. Elon, thank you very much. New Yorkers may soon pay more to have online purchases delivered. Brooklyn Assemblyman Robert Carroll proposed a bill that would add a $3 delivery tax to online orders. He said the move would incentivize people to shop local and offset costs from the influx of delivery trucks and the tons of cardboard and plastic that must be removed after delivery. He also said it would offer a check on Amazon's dominance of the retail landscape, the fee would be tacked on for non-essential goods. That means food, medicine, diapers would be excluded from this. The revenue gained would be used to help the city's struggling mass transit system. And uh, guys, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. I, I don't really love this. I don't, I don't love the fact that, that FedEx has taken over the sidewalks either uh, and, and turned them into you know, temporary warehouses effectively to, to, to ship everything. And maybe they should be paying for that in some way. But I, I don't really like using the tax system in this instance to protect other industry because there's an, 
an element of innovation. At the same time, I love small business. So I, I'm, I'm so conflicted. That's sorry to hear. I hadn't, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at this and see if I need to feel bad about this. Uh, I, I, I didn't consider, you know who I feel bad for? The FedEx guy I see on Sunday nights outside my house. It's like, what oh is gosh. happening? I see even, even, even the Postal Service. And the other guys I feel bad for yeah. are people trying to drive in the roads out here because the Amazon guys just stop. And the big and they get out and like the traffic stopped on both sides of them and it's like I'm parking here I'm with Amazon I'm sorry yeah, you got a problem take it, take it up with it's take it up with fault. Bezos we have everything that's getting right. delivered we have everything that's getting delivered to our doors it's our own fault so, I mean and this is every one of our neighbors but means, do you think there should you know, be the, but do you think that there should do you think there should be a additional effective tax, if you will, on these deliveries? Because the, there is an element to which the Amazons and FedEx and UPSs that are working on behalf of the Shopify's and everybody else are using the roads, if you will, and the sidewalks in ways that were never really imagined or expected. Um, I, look, I, 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 I think know, you're going to see a tax in New York City on everything. Andrew, there's going to be a tax in New York City on everything. They are so short of revenue. They are having such issues with this. If they raise taxes on any of the businesses, those businesses threaten to leave. So you're going to see a tax on anything and everything that moves in New York City in the coming years. But, you're, but Andrew, you're, you're I, right I, to think that, I hope though. not, because uh, I actually think that's going to make it harder. Right. You're, you're right to think it because you're thinking the right things. These, these companies are innovators, and they're, they're paying taxes. They're already... As their business grows, they're employing a bunch of people. This is antithetical to the you didn't build this um, uh, mantra that we used to hear that it's because of the government building roads and doing this and doing that. And that's where you used to come down normally, that, that corporations need to pay their no. freight for using all well, these public I, services. I now you're actually built, questioning it, which the, is progress, which is progress. Well, no, I'm saying two things. We've, we, it just we means the consumer's going to pay built it anyway. the, All of us have helped build the infrastructure, which are the roads. And so there is an argument to make, especially about an Amazon or, frankly, all, the, all of the folks who are now using all of that to get these products to us. I, I would believe, as you know, in, a, in a, um, a minimum tax for corporations, because Amazon, as you know, as a corporation, uh, has not paid taxes uh, or historically not but had a very high tax bill at, on a relative basis. A $3 tax on one of these delivery things just means that they are going to add a surcharge to you. So you, the Amazon customer, is going to pay oh. the $3 surcharge. I mean, that, that, every tax no that comes down is just going to get passed on to the consumer. No question. Maybe that's what's really bothering him. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to, to, to be conflicted, I think. I'm conflicted. Uh, it's my middle name. Shares of cybersecurity firm FireEye are lower this morning after the company said that it was the victim of a highly sophisticated foreign government t attack that compromised the software tools that it uses to test the defenses of its customers. FireEye said that the attacker primarily sought information about government clients. The hackers reportedly used a rare combination of attack tools that hadn't previously been used in any known attack that stock down by about 9%. Tough to say how you're going to protect others when you're having a tough time protecting yourself. It's yeah. that, uh, that, by the way, is a, is a dangerous situation, a meaningfully dangerous situation, because those tools are the tools that FireEye uses to effectively hack into uh, companies uh, on what's called a red team to actually show them what hackers could do. So you get those tools and you can actually do White hat, yeah. uh, some real damage. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. The, the New York Times described it as effectively robbing the bank 
and then robbing the FBI, you know, then basically breaking into the FBI that would be investigating the robbery. So they, they've, they've done some real potentially damage here. We'll see uh, what happens. I'm in awe, I'm in awe of hackers. Uh, just, you know, there's mornings when I, you know, when I can't even get into this. And, I, you know, I three passwords, that one doesn't work, and then I'm on the phone. So uh, <laughs> trying to hack into my own, uh, my own account here at NBC Universal, which uh, I, I could use help. So getting into FireEye, would you know where to start, Sorkin? Would you, uh, which button would it be? Um, any idea? Would you stick yeah, one of those works. little... Uh, I, I, Huh? No, the, the job application for uh, any ideas. hacker. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, of... you you know how to. You... <laughs> I I don't want to. I don't want to yeah. give. You know. In other words, I, you have you a good want... defense going, Joe. It's so good you can't even get it. Uh, I have a good defense to myself. Right. I've even I'm defending against myself getting into my accounts. So uh, <laughs> I I need to. You know, we got to change our password again here. Do you guys see that? I always dread when that happens. Coming yeah, up with another already. one, it's like, oh God. Yeah. Oh, God, I've done the birthday, I've done the address, done the kids' birthdays, I've done, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm like running out of things. Do they, is there a generator? Do you have one of those, Sorkin, that can generate a good, you know, how do you guys feel when no, it goes all here. the way up? When it gets stronger and stronger and stronger, I'm like, yes. Oh, I hate it, because it means yes, I'm never going to remember it. it. No, I know. But, but, but the more it goes up, it's like I'm really doing well here. It's almost like a test. This password is just amazing. Uh, anyway. Next on Squawk Pod, ass-kicking, throwing salt out of the window, a lively discussion about taxes. Really? With New York Congressman Tom Swasey, his fight to repeal the cap on homeowners' deduction of state and local taxes, and he's watching the opposition pretty closely. I'm pretty certain that Joe Biden will support reinstating the salt deduction. There are some Democrats that won't, but we are going to make sure that any politician that doesn't support reinstating the salt deduction is held accountable. We're back after this. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. This is Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew. Working at Goldman Sachs might be coming with uh, a lot more sunshine. Uh, the iconic Wall Street firm is considering moving its asset management arm out of New York's financial district. This comes amid high real estate costs, of course, and the rise of remote work due to the pandemic. And here to discuss Goldman Sachs and his call to repeal the salt cap, Re- Representative Tom Swazi from New York. Good morning to you. Uh, Tom, appreciate uh, you joining us. Uh, you, you have a proposal or, or a plan that you hope is going to uh, help end the idea that companies are going to want to leave New York, but I want to understand what it means. Okay, Andrew, thanks so much. First of all, let's uh, say to Goldman Sachs, please don't leave us. We're in a desperate time in New York right now. We need you. You're important to us. We want you to stay, but we understand there are things that make New York unattractive. And one of the biggest things that's happened recently was the 2017 tax cut that put a cap on the SALT deduction. And what I'm doing is I've been proposing legislation. I passed it through the House with the Democratic majority and some Republican votes uh, to repeal the SALT cap, to put the SALT deduction back. 
I'm going to do it again in January, but this time let's keep track of the people that are not supporting the reinstatement of the SALT deduction. And New Yorkers, I'm pleading with you, all New Yorkers, don't give financial support, don't give contributions to those politicians that are killing us. They are working against us. They are, they are undermining us. Don't donate to our, uh, to our, our demise. Tom, can, can I just broaden this conversation out, though, because the SALT deduction is a big issue, but there are municipalities, cities across the country uh, that have uh, that have typically been higher tax cities or higher tax states than others. And you're seeing you're, you're seeing a demonstrable move where people are going to Florida. They're going to Texas. Uh, we can ask you know, as a New Yorker, I can ask the Goldman Sachs of the world to stay in New York. I could try to make a moral argument to stay in New York. I could, I could even go farther than that, which is to say that Goldman Sachs got a $115 million tax break to build their headquarters in New York City back in 2000, uh, in, in the late 2000s when they built that, uh, uh, built that headquarters. But the real question is, beyond SALT, which, which may, may be able to be repealed, though I don't think there's a big appetite to do that, what you think states and cities uh, that are in these positions should be doing? Well, I just want to just stick with SALT for one second, then I'll, I'll answer your question. We have to focus on repealing the SALT deduction. It's, a, it's, it's exacerbating the problem we faced before coronavirus, but exacerbated by coronavirus, and the SALT deduction makes it that much worse, the cap on the SALT deduction. And anybody who contributes money to politicians that don't support the reinstatement of the SALT cap, we're going to start publishing their names starting in April. As far as other things cities have to do, uh, municipalities have to do, states have to do, politicians have to do, in New York, we need to recognize how important the financial sector is to our economy. We understand, you know, the, the historic issues with Wall Street and the problems that exist and abuses and need for reform. Okay, there are some issues that need to be addressed. There's no question about that. But the financial sector, the real estate sector, the insurance sector in New York are central to our economy, and we need to start treating them like that. In Detroit, they don't pick on the car companies. In Houston, they don't pick on the oil companies. In Iowa, they don't pick on the agriculture businesses. We need to build a relationship so we can work together, have understandings with each other and trust with each other that we can make it more attractive for them to live here. Tom, but part of the conundrum, I think, is it's not just about how the cities are treating the companies themselves. It's actually the tax rate for individuals. So one of the things that I understand from my reporting on Goldman Sachs is that there's a group of employees who effectively think that they would like to work in Florida because their personal income taxes would be a lot lower. It becomes a more attractive place for them to be. Therefore, the employer says, if I want the talent and I want to keep everybody happy and all of that, I'm going to go to these other places. Then the question, by the way, meantime, you know, on a, from a corporate perspective, New York, even though they have very high tax rates, typically there's tax breaks left and right that have been given out to keep corporations in New York, which are not preventing them from leaving. And so the question is, do you lower the tax rates here in New York, which might seem like the thing to do, but then you have an even bigger revenue problem? Yeah, there's a, this is a major challenge. The places that have the higher taxes in America are the older places, the older industrial places, quite frankly, originally, that have older infrastructure. You know, right now, New York subsidizes the rest of the country. We are the biggest net donor state in the United States of America. And who do we subsidize? Well, the taker states are states like South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, Arizona. When people say they want to move out of New York, where are they going? South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, Arizona. When the progressive tax code was first set up, when we said, oh, we have to help our, 
our, our lower income brothers and sisters throughout the rest of the country, we set up this system under the New Deal and the Great Society to subsidize these other states to help them to catch up with us. Now we're subsidizing them to kick our ass. They're, they're the ones that are booming. When they get the money, they're building new roads and new sewers and new hospitals and new schools and they're expanding and their tax bases are expanding. When we get the same money and we get less, we're fixing old roads and old sewers and old schools and old hospitals and we're just hanging on for dear life. So there needs to be a relook at the entire way that the federal government hands out our money because we're the biggest net donor in America. One of the things that really gets me is when Mitch McConnell says, I don't want to do a blue state bailout. Well, in the past five years, New York State has sent $120 billion more in income taxes to the federal government than we've gotten back. While uh, Kentucky, where Mitch McConnell is from, has received $150 billion more than they've put in. We've been bailing them out, so to speak, for years, for decades. So we'll do that. We understand that. We're good Americans. We're going to support other people in our country. But let's not hurt us in our time of need. This has happened to us during 9-11, during Sandy, now during the COVID crisis where they don't want to give us money for the uh, state and local aid. And it happened worst of all with the capping of the SALT deduction. You talk about those employees that are telling their bosses, hey, I want to move to a place where it's cheaper. The SALT deduction was a punch in the gut. It was one of the most dramatic things that have encourage people to move out. Listen, New York will always be in New York. We've got Lincoln Center. We've got Broadway. We've got these great restaurants. We have Central Park. We have all these wonderful places on the Long Island Sound, upstate New York, the Adirondacks. We have these great things. It's more expensive to live here, but it's managed to work for many, many years. But now we're in a crisis stage because of coronavirus and because of the salt deduction. And we need to start holding those politicians accountable. And New Yorkers need to stop giving them money until they wake up to the reality that they are hurting our state, they're hurting our city, they're hurting our towns and villages. So uh, I'm going to start organizing more to hold these politicians accountable and ask New Yorkers not to contribute to them. Congressman, does that list of, of, of politicians that you'd ask New Yorkers not to contribute to include President-elect Biden at this point? Because originally repealing SALT was part of his platform. It, it, it disappeared at one point. I'm not sure where he comes down on that right now. Have you spoken I'm to the campaign or to the new administration? I'm pretty certain that Joe Biden will support re uh, reinstating the SALT deduction, as will Chuck Schumer, as will Nancy Pelosi. There are some Democrats that won't, uh, but we are going to make sure that any politician that doesn't support reinstating the SALT deduction is held accountable. So the first quarter of uh, 2021, uh, which is January through March, when contributions are made, a report comes out on April 15th. We will compile by the end of that month a list of all the donors from New York that are giving money to these politicians that are subsidizing our own demise. Hey, Congressman, I, I'm getting a, a, a lot of, I don't, you know, Twitter, the cesspool. Anyway, these are all constituents of yours out in Nassau, and they're, they want me as devil's advocate to say, are you kidding me? When, when Tom Swasey became a Nassau County executive 20 years ago, and they're talking about all the taxes that you've raised while deficits have continued uh, to go up, don't politicians... Uh, have any responsibility, the ones that have, that have I don't know, uh, f figure out where the waste is, figure out where the, you know, maybe if, if certain unions had too much, uh, held too much sway in terms of pension benefits. Think of all the things that profligate politicians do. You're not holding any of them to account for where spending well, is absolutely have to, to hold them to point? account. And that was Not 20 all. years ago, Joe, and I was one of the biggest fighters for the property tax cap in New York State, and we now have a property tax cap. I actually ran for governor against Elliot Spitzer in a Democratic primary on the issue of a property tax cap. Now, I got beaten pretty badly. It didn't turn out too well for me. 
didn't turn out too well for Elliot Spitzer either, but the reality is, is that we now have a property tax cap in New York State, and thanks to Governor Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. So I, I agree that we need to fight to hold costs down in New York State. We absolutely need to make our state as competitive as possible. The property tax cap was a big dramatic push for that. And the county taxes, when I was county executive, were less than 20% of the taxes overall. It's the school taxes that are so out of control. And right now, one of the big reasons we need state and local aid from the federal government, because we've lost so much in revenues, is because the biggest expenditure of our state is school, is school, school aid. And we need that money that we've right. lost in sales tax revenues to supplement Tom, our schools, or they're going to have to start laying people off. Right. Tom, I don't disagree with you with, with, with the situation of the givers and the takers, and, and frankly, uh, the, the, almost the socialistic uh, approach that we've taken, which is to say that you're right, New York is subsidizing a lot of other states around the country. The question I'd ask you, though, is there's a lot of folks who say, you know what, the SALT deduction, trying to repeal the SALT deduction and get that back is actually just going to help the wealthy, just going to help the elites. What do you say to that? That's absolutely untrue. While a lot of wealthy people will get the benefit of the SALT deduction, if people move away from New York State, who gets left holding the bag? The people that can't move away, the moderate and low-income people. All the programs that we have in our state are subsidized by these same people that are funding our governments. The top 1% in New York State pay 40% of the revenues to New York State, 47% of the revenues to New York City. We're all in this together. Now, I've, I'm... I'm uh, also uh, passionate about the fact that we need to stop beating up the wealthy people in New York State that are playing by the rules, that are doing the right thing, and that are contributing to our governments. We don't want people who break the rules. We'll hold people accountable when they break the rules. But we can't just be against people for being successful. They're an essential part of our economy right. that help to subsidize our state, our city, our counties, our towns, and our villages. And if we chase them out of our state, we're going to get, get left behind holding the bag, and then we're going to have another problem of either cutting essential services or raising taxes, and we can't do either one of those. Representative Tom Swazi, we appreciate uh, you joining us. Uh, we uh, look forward to continuing this conversation with you uh, very, very and much. Thanks Happy for having holidays. me on. Talk to you soon. Coming up on Squawk Pod, the surprising and little-known condition of post-COVID syndrome. Patients feeling sick for months. We'll hear from a Mayo Clinic doctor working on their recovery. What I can say at this point, post-COVID syndrome, the long-haul scenario, is not something that is rare. And patients, providers, and employers should be uh, expecting to see this in their communities. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. 
The U.S. coronavirus case tally surpassed 15 million yesterday, adding another million cases in just four days. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, warned that the 2020 holiday season will be a dark time. We have not yet seen the full blunt and, and, and the effect of the traveling and the congregating. That should be sometime probably next week or a week and a half, and then we're gonna enter into the Christmas season again with more traveling. So we're in for a very challenging period. Yesterday, the United Kingdom began to administer its first doses of the COVID vaccine from Pfizer to at-risk citizens across the country. Here, an FDA advisory committee will meet on Thursday to discuss emergency approval to distribute Pfizer's vaccine in the U.S. But many of those who have already contracted coronavirus are experiencing long-term symptoms. You might have heard of COVID for the long haul, and that is affecting their ability to work or return to productivity. Dr. Greg Vanishkashorn from the Mayo Clinic has been studying these long-term effects, and he's working with post-COVID patients on rehabilitation. He joined Squawk Box this morning. Here's Becky. Dr. Van, it's good to see you this morning. This is something that's been talked about, but really hasn't been focused on. How many people have the long-standing impact that comes with COVID that lasts longer than the three or four weeks you would think it would take to clear this up? Yeah, thank you so much for having me this morning. You know, at this point, it's a little bit too early to accurately estimate about how many people will be coming down with post-COVID syndrome. And the reason for this is that the research out there has looked at pretty specialized populations. And because of that, the results have been very varied. So for example, a study in Italy looked at patients and almost 80% of those patients were still suffering symptoms about two months after their acute infection. Yet another study in London looked at patients and found that only about 10% of those were suffering from continued symptoms about a month afterwards. But what I can say at this point, and I feel confident in this, is that post-COVID syndrome, the long-haul scenario, is not something that is rare. And patients, providers, and employers should be uh, expecting to see this in their communities. What are the long-term impacts? Can you describe it? And I guess part of it, because it's not necessarily an easy thing to catalog or to, to say exactly what it is, that could explain some of the difference between the 10% or the 25%. But how severe are these symptoms? What should people expect? Unfortunately, they can be quite severe. There are three main symptoms that we most often hear about from patients. The first and most common being fatigue. And it's not just like any fatigue, like you know, fatigue that we get from a bad night of sleep, but rather profound fatigue. So for example, patients will say that doing something as simple as taking a, a dog for a walk, going up a flight of steps at their home can often result in them needing to take a, a nap or rest for several hours afterwards. Uh, the other uh, symptom that we hear a lot about is something called brain fog, and that is manifest with difficulties in short-term memory, concentration, and also difficulties with multitasking. The third most common symptom that we see is uh, shortness of breath and cough, and that actually seems to occur both with rest and activity. So, Doctor, I'm just wondering uh, what your thinking is on, on the, the actual uh, underlying causes for these things. I mean, th th does the initial uh, onset of the virus as a scourge to the body leave lasting scars on different organs or different parts of the body? Or is there an autoimmune response that we're seeing that seems to continue even after you've completely cleared the virus? 
There is a lot of research going on to this, and we're trying to uncover what the true etiology is of the condition. I don't believe that this is related to an ongoing acute COVID infection, but rather the sequelae from the infection uh, initially. Our current hypotheses include things such as alterations in blood flow, especially to the brain, as well as possibly an autoimmune state, like you mentioned, or some increased uh, inflammation for a longer period of time after the acute infection. But something that we're looking at closely and just starting to, <clears throat> excuse me, scratch the surface on. Do you think, doctor, that this is something that is impacted based on uh, different genetic makeups for people? Is it something that if you get different treatments, if you receive a treatment earlier and maybe it stops the virus before it continues to replicate? What are, what are your guesses on that? Well, at this point, I can't say that there is a genetic basis for the differences in the outcomes. We, of course, have seen patients who have had more severe cases of COVID, like those patients being in the ICU or in the hospital, or patients of advanced age uh, being more likely to come down with post-COVID syndrome. But I think one of the real startling things about this is that those kinds of patients, you know, hospitalized patients or the elderly, don't make up the majority of the patients that we have been seeing. In fact, many of the patients that we are seeing are younger in age and are quite healthy and physically fit before their COVID infection. So unfortunately, it does seem like this is something that anybody can come down with after their infection. Doctor, I think there were similar things seen with MERS and SARS. So I'm wondering if it's specific to this type of respiratory virus, because there's a lot of viruses where once it's gone, it's completely gone. So can you get clues from, from those other, uh, uh, you know, we've seen epidemic, uh, not quite like this, but we've seen some epidemics in the past where you can test those patients years after being exposed. Is it similar? And uh, any clues? Similar, yes. And, and fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, we did see this previously with the SARS and MERS outbreaks back in 2003, but of course to a, a much smaller scale, so it didn't quite make uh, headway in medicine then. But we have learned from, from our experiences with those patients about the treatments and um, Again, that's where we saw patients who have more uh, advanced age and severe illness acutely get uh, post-COVID syndrome. This does have some similarities with other viruses, uh, such as mononucleosis, or mono, as we all know it. Um, but it's not a trait that we see for viruses across the board. For example, this is not something that we have seen with the common cold or influenza. Are there uh, other institutions like better than the Mayo Clinic looking at this, doctor? I mean, I'd like I think we really ought to. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so if the Mayo Clinic uh, can't figure it out, I think we, we got I think we got problems. Um, but uh, it, it's it, there's a, how much research would you say is that a lot of research is basic science. This seems really applied and it seems like something that should be funded uh, and, and going on at a lot of different places, is it? Yes, absolutely. So initially, post-COVID syndrome, just because we saw cases initially on the East Coast of COVID, uh, post-COVID syndrome treatment started there on the East Coast. I believe there's a great center at Mount Sinai, for example, that is doing a lot of these treatments. And the research is, is quickly building up, starting, uh, as you have alluded to, mainly with just trying to figure out who these patients are and what kind of characteristics they're developing. Uh, we've been a little bit uh, held back by the fact that not many people recognize post-COVID syndrome for a while. And now that this is becoming more apparent, more and more research efforts are developing, and hopefully funding will follow with that as well. Hey, doctor, I, I, we're, we're getting towards the point where we, we hope we're seeing real light at the end of the tunnel. You, you've got the vaccines that are already starting to be rolled out in the UK, hopefully here in the United States later this month. 
And that's great news, but you know, there's still months and months to go before we get a significant portion of the population vaccinated before those vaccines have time to kick in. And I just wonder what you would be advising people if they do happen to come down with COVID, if there's anything, because I've heard all kinds of things, some things that you can kind of look up and, and find research to back it up on the internet, but things mm-hmm. like Pepsid AC that I know some doctors have been taking because it's supposedly worked to slow this, the, the replication of the virus in, in things like uh, SARS in the past or taking vitamin D because supposedly you have a, a better chance of a better outcome if, if you've been on vitamin D before some of these things. Is there anything that you would subscribe to or anything that you yourself have been taking? You know, I, I try to keep things as natural as possible when it comes to my own healthcare and for my patients. And so I'm very hesitant to recommend things just based on consultations with what I call Dr. Google, who's a good colleague of mine as well. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I've been looking for that silver bullet, the vitamin D replacement or the Pepsid AC treatments. And unfortunately, right now, we have not yet identified anything that really seems to change the trajectory of these patients in a quick fashion. What I would say is the mainstay of treatment and something that we have seen very helpful with the previous infections is helping patients regain, regain their strength and function in an appropriate fashion because this really is a scenario where you can do too much too fast and make yourself much worse. Do, Dr. do the MERS and SARS short, people, sorry, Beck, I'm just wondering if the MERS and SARS people years later, is it gone? Are they okay? Or it's lingering because you said 2003. Is it gone now? Um, For the most part, those patients have improved, but it took quite a bit of time, sometimes even more than a year, for them to recover their function. Of course, not everyone has improved. I am happy to say that the patients that we have had in our program here do seem to be following a positive course, and we have had patients get back to their normal baseline function. Great. How many patients have you had there? Um, I would say a little over 100 at this point. Wow. Dr. Vanishka Shorn, thank you very much for your time this morning. It's it's great talking to you, and we hope you'll come back and update us. Thank you very much for having me. Y'all take care. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for being here. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You'll get us in your feed every day, and tell us what you think. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or tweet us at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.